Welcome, welcome, welcome to everybody's favorite podcast, Looking California and Feeling Minnesota. My name is Michael McCaffrey and I'm with Barry Anderson. And I'm the Looking California part. Barry is definitely Feeling Minnesota. <laughs> and I got to be honest, he's kind of looking Minnesota right now too. Um, we are here to talk about movies. That's what we do. And we are here to talk about 1917, which is a war film directed by Sam Mendes, and it is a Golden Globes Best Picture winner and a Producer Guild of America Best Picture winner, which means it is the odds-on favorite right now to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. And so we are going to hold this film up to some scrutiny, see if it's any good or not, because we're the only ones who know that. It's just me and Barry. So Barry, let's talk about 1917. Do you want to give a recap of what the plot of this film is you want the studio plot or yes the anderson <laughs> filmmaker plot? <laughs> different ones uh yeah let's 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 do I'll, I'll do the quick rundown here so it's a war film from world war one hence the name 1917 and it's the story of two british soldiers who are given a mission to go through no man's land to warn a battalion of other british soldiers that the attack they're about to go on is a trap and the Germans are about to ambush them. The two soldiers whose names are Lance Corporal William Schofield and Lance Corporal Tom Blake uh, have to go on this mission and they have to do it in eight hours. So they have to leave in the afternoon and get there by morning. Um, I think that's it. Oh, and Lance Corporal Tom Blake is chosen for this mission because his brother is among the soldiers in the battalion that will be slaughtered if he does not get there. So that's the story. It is written by Sam Mendes. He directed the film as well. And the cinematographer is Roger Deakins, who is a pivotal part of this discussion. And there we are. So, Barry, what did you think of 1917? I thought 1917 as a film was uh, fine. It was not. Uh, it was not the end all be all. I, I had heard things leading up to the movie that it was like one of those defining war movies, like uh, Saving Private Ryan or, uh, um, uh, oh my gosh, what's uh, Kubrick's film? Can't think of it all of a sudden. Uh, Paths of Glory. No, well, Paths of Glory would be older, but the Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, Full Metal Jacket. You know. There you go. Okay. And, and and I just I felt, and we'll get more into it. I felt that some of the creative choices and how to make the movie ended up inadvertently sabotaging what could have been the movie. Because a movie that we could talk about more at the end, um, did you ever see the, I think it's 1930-something, but did you ever, um, the other World War One movie, I think it won Best Picture, uh, All Quiet on the All Western. Quiet on the, yeah. Yeah, uh, I saw it years ago, yes. And I remember when I saw that, it was, you know, kind of during that era where you started watching classic films and, like, having to, like, grit your teeth over black and white, and then you watch it and you're like, wait, these are great films. And you kind of, you know, eliminated that stigma for me. I loved All Quiet on the Western Front. I thought it was like one of those movies that, you know, it was very poignant. You know, I was engaged and I liked it. So I, I agreed with Sam Mendes who said that, you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of cinema on World War II and a lot on Vietnam, uh, but almost very little on World War I and things like the Korean War. Uh, so I was kind of fun to go dip back into World War I and kind of, you know, see a different take because this is, you know, the British in their kind of version. And I was like, all right, let's, let's go with this. Um, I didn't mind that there wasn't a lot of big names in it. 
and uh, I I I kind of wish that I hadn't heard kind of the 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 trick prior to going into it. I don't know if that meant I was focusing more on it or not. I think I would have discovered it, and then I was, still would have had the same problem. But I will spoiler alert: you can turn off the podcast now if you don't want to know. But they shot the movie as if it was all done in one take. So the camera, you know, camera wasn't another soldier going with. It wasn't like a point of view. But everything in the movie kind of continued from scene to scene, location to location, in, in essence, in real time, kind of along with them. And uh, it is a technical feat to marvel at. The question I have is story-wise and emotion-wise, uh, was that the right choice? In my opinion, I would say no. We can talk about why, but I'm curious to know what your general thoughts about the movie were. Uh, I didn't see it, so I have no idea. Um... <laughs> perfect answer. Perfect answer. <laughs> I saw the commercial and I loved it, so that's all that matters. No, um, yes, I saw the film. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it is... Uh a piece of technical virtuosity. It's an impressive feat, especially when you realize, you know, if you work in this business, you understand how difficult it is to pull off a, you know, de facto hour and 45 minute, two hour, uh, uh, one continuous take, wink, wink. Um, What I did not like about the film was that it felt like a very empty experience. I felt there was no emotional connection to the characters or even the, the narrative arc. And I wonder why I'd love to talk about this because I'd love to get into the, the nitty gritty as to why that is. And I think a lot of it has to do with actually that technical virtuosity and the choices that were made to do it as a quote unquote one take film and the consequences of that. So, um, yeah. So for everybody who's listening, we are going to talk spoilers. There are a few of them. So if you don't want to know what happens in the movie, you should go see it and then come back and uh, listen to this. Um, So let's start with, uh, you are a cinematographer, um, not a very good one, yep. um, but you are one. Thank <laughs> you for calling that great. out in public. That was great. <laughs> no, Barry's great. And, you know, I'm, I'm a, a, I studied cinematography. I know a bit about it. Um, can you tell our listeners just how difficult it is to do that sort of those are really long takes that are strung together. Yes, they are. And it's difficult. Now, we should tell our listeners that the cinematographer is Roger Deakins, who is, uh, the consensus is one of the greatest cinematographers to ever work in the industry. He would be on Um, the Mount Rushmore cinematographers. He he certainly would. Um, He has 15 Oscar nominations, including for 1917, uh, He's nominated and he's won just once, which was sort of like a weird Susan Lucci uh, yeah. thing over yes. the years of him not winning for doing superb work. But can you just talk about how difficult it is to do those really long takes with so much camera movement and like getting everything right and the lighting and all of this sort of stuff? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll start by stating this. It would be difficult enough under what I would call normal circumstances. If it's just people on a street going from building to building and you try to control that, what was really interesting about this particular film is you would have things like 
you'd be following them for like six minutes through this epic, like art directed battle scene through this, you come out and then suddenly a plane crashes and the building they're standing next to bursts on fire. And you're kind of like, and then it keeps going and you're like, well, then what happens if that didn't work? Do they rebuild that? Like, you know, where, where are their, you know, Oh crap moments where they have to hit a button and they just stop the scene because there were some unbelievably complex very difficult to reset and redo. So obviously there was a lot of practice. There was a lot of, you know, getting that right. But what was really weird that adds to that level of complication is it was all shot outside. And so it's a sort of thing where like, if it's a semi cloudy to sunny day, then you have a sunny day, then you have a cloudy day and you're trying to match these things together. I know you have, you know, you can rotoscope everything, and, you know, change it, but the lighting then in the scene looks different. I mean, you, there's so much, there's only so much you can do to control the sun in the outside environments. And some of these were wide epic shots. So not only did they have the complexity of these, you know, war and the art direction and these big special effects moments that were done with practical elements, but then you had weather on top of it. And I can't imagine, you know, the, the production coordinator and the, uh, the ADs trying to set all this out. And then someone's like, yeah, no, it's going to be uh, sunny that day. And you're like scrapping it for three weeks and trying to rearrange things to make it work. Um, I think that would be a fascinating masterclass in just how complex it gets on a, on a, just a sheer logistical level on a day-to-day -day basis. The nice part was unlike movies like, you know, Paths of Glory or, um, uh, uh, uh Saving Private Ryan is there was a good deal of the movie that was the two guys and or you know a couple other people, so you didn't have like a hundred thousand extras for an hour and forty minutes. So they did have long stretches where you had a little bit more control, um, but again, it scales from two people to you know battalions of people fighting with explosions. So I mean, it was, I mean, whew, I I I lose sleep thinking about how awful it would be to even entertain <laughs> the idea of such a thing. Yeah, it's interesting. I had read that uh, that Deacons uses this um, some some app, some iPhone app that gives you the cloud cover, like so it's a cloud cover predictor. So how much you know? Yeah. And so he was using that sort of con continuously trying to figure out what days he could shoot and what days he couldn't shoot, and all these sorts of things. And he says on his blog, actually. Uh, he recommends it to all aspiring filmmakers to like make that a part of your life. This is this stupid app. <laughs> like we'll tell you how much sunlight you're going to get, which makes sense. Um, but I mean, that's like, that's telling someone to predict the weather. I mean, I feel like people would be billionaires by now if they could figure that out. So, I mean, it's, it's only so good. And on a budget, I mean, I don't know what the budget of, you know, 1917 was, but I mean, you know, if you don't have million dollars, if you don't have at least double digit millions, you, you, you don't even think of something like this because it's just not, you don't have that luxury of burning that sort of capital waiting for the right light. Yeah. It's a hundred million dollar budget. Uh, thus far it's taken in 150 million. Okay. Um, so it's, it's doing quite well. Uh, now in terms of the, the one as we'll call it, the, the one take um, sort of approach, uh, my feelings on it were, I thought it was executed quite well. Um, to open the film uh, and then through sort of the plot points of the, the guys, the film opens with the two soldiers asleep in a field. They are woken up and given this uh, mission and then they go into the trenches to uh, get their direct mission and then they go on their journey. And I felt the, 
the wonder worked very well in those situations and it worked very well when they first go into no man's land, yes. which is, it, it's a very tense and it's very well done. And again, you know, he's going from just, uh, you know, steady cam walking along. And then I don't know if he's getting on uh, a crane <laughs> and there, yeah. yeah, you know, to go over water and stuff like that, because there are these shots of these large craters and things. And so, you know, that, that the, the camera operators is going through some uh, gymnastics and calisthenics <laughs> to get this thing done. But I think it works extremely well in drawing the, the viewer into the story and into the action. And I think it works very well doing that. The problem to me is that that works up until the point where, uh, what's his name, George Mackay, who plays Schofield, where he leaves um, Mark Strong, who is the leader of this group of soldiers that he comes across um, in, in a truck and things like that. And they go on a journey and he gets dropped off and a sniper starts shooting at him. And I felt the wonder went from being a, a wonderful tool to draw audiences into the story to being a gimmick at that point, because the story started revolving around that. And so they had to come up with things to make that work. And what ends up happening is right after that happens, he gets shot at by the sniper. He tracks the sniper into this building. They have a confrontation and he gets knocked out. And you have to knock him out because you can't shoot this thing and have it be eight hours long. <laughs> you have to take a big chunk of that time out. So he has to be asleep for it. And then it's nighttime when he wakes up, he goes on his journey. And I felt it went precipitously downhill from there until the very final sort of battle scene where he's running along the trench and things are exploding and people are coming out of the trenches running. And I thought that was a beautiful shot. Um, but I felt the rest of it, even though it looks great and, and he Deacons does a wonderful job using large fires to light uh, the nighttime shots uh, that really are wonderful. And the orange glow of those fires are beautiful. Um, but I just thought it didn't work. After, from that point forward. And the other thing to point out in terms of it is a, an achievement for Deacons, it's also an achievement for the actors and particularly George Mackay, who I can tell you from experience, one of the most difficult things you can do as an actor is all the business that you have to do. And to do it on camera, to do it on time, to get the blocking right, not just with you and the other actors, but in this case with uh, the camera, um, is very difficult to do. And it's very difficult to do and stay in character and stay focused on your intentions and all of this sort of stuff. And so I, I was really impressed with George McKay. I thought he did a very good job. I thought all the, all the actors actually did a good job for what they had. But I felt the wonder at that point uh, with the sniper, it turned from being enhance, enhancing the story to being a gimmick that actually undermined the story um, and undermined the emotional connection to the characters. Um, so that's that's just my first take on it. So you're wrong. <clears throat> um, Thank you. Yeah, the I agree with you that it worked. The best part about it was getting them through the original trenches up to no man's land, and the latter part of no man's land, kind of after they went through a lot of the the stuff that you normally see with the barbed wire and all the stuff. They kind of came to these open areas where you know just carnage and everything was there, and they're kind of just sludging through it. What I didn't like about the first part of No Man's Land is it's like 
they're basically saying like, you know, whatever it was less than two days, this was like one of the biggest battles of the war. So if you think about having the entire German army on the other side of this like relatively small patch of land, when you get up over that ridge and you start walking around, to me, it's going to take a lot longer to get comfortable to move. Even though they said, hey, they've moved, they've moved, we have intelligence, they've moved. Nobody really believes it until you can like prove it. And so I felt like you were watching them walk through, but to me, there wasn't enough trepidation and anticipation that like, even if, even if the army moved, would they leave a couple people to, to, you know, to sniper, to, you know, to at least have some gunfire to keep people from thinking that they've moved the whole army. Like, I just felt like they just got up and started walking. And you got to see all this cool stuff and that worked. But for me, you know, if you told me to go across no man's land, I would be literally sweating bullets. I would be so tweakishly like, oh my gosh. And you'd move and then you'd pause and then you'd like listen and you'd be looking and then you're like, okay, I can't sit here. I got to keep moving. But they just kind of got up and just slowly creeped across and they didn't really ever stop. And there wasn't really any tension that built. It was just like in the script, it was like, must cross no man's land come up with cool shot. They didn't think about what people really would be doing because they, they set it up well that they tried to tell them there isn't going to be anybody, but then they also gave the conflicting thing of like, well, what is the likelihood that we would get the intelligence that the entire army would leave? So there was tension as to whether or not there was going to be conflict. And I didn't like the Warner because they couldn't stop and like build that tension because otherwise it would just be, you know, on the side of their face and you're, what are you looking at? You can't really... In a visual medium, you can't edit together something to build that tension if it's not there in real time. And I felt like that that first part you needed to release, you needed to build up that tension and then release it. Then that one or for the latter part would have been beautiful until they got into the German, um, you know, trenches. Mm-hmm. That would have been beautiful. And then I I thought that probably about the same time that you were talking about when you know they met the other British troop. But I would say almost almost to that sequence before when the the plane crashes and there's the confrontation with the pilot that you know some of the stuff in there this was a pretty big pivot point in the movie and you're kind of i think there could have been ways that you maybe could have staged it better with the warner but even even if you would have slightly tweaked it i just think that you're you're taken out of the story and you're having to catch up as an audience and then my mm-hmm. catch up you're still moving along so there's never even if there's time in a normal edit, if you have a beat or you leave an edit for it to linger or you leave on a gaze of someone, it allows you to kind of catch up to where they are or anticipate before you see. And with that wonder, if you start having those feelings, everything's still moving. So then you're, you're still trying to catch up. And so you never really get that, the weight or the pauses or the contemplation the way you would if you shot it as a more traditional movie. So I think by forcing an hour and 45 minutes of that, you cut out the little stuff. I mean, not to compare movies because it's not always fair, but if you take something like Saving Private Ryan, one of the most maddeningly anger-making scenes, and I think, frankly, a very effective scene, was the scene where the the one guy that was kind of a coward, you know, he's got one of his friends fighting a guy with a knife. Yeah. And he's standing outside the room, and you're just waiting for the guy to, like, you know, you see it and you're like, go in. Like you could literally save your friend and he's just too paranoid and that juxtaposition. But if you think about shooting that same scene as a warner, you move from the one guy and you see it, then you loop around, you kind of come back. You, it doesn't work. You don't, you, you can't have the same emotional beats that I think you need. So unless every choreographed walk or placement of the things 
work for the camera shot, then you are losing the whole reason you're in a visual medium. And I think that's where, because they forced the whole hour and 45 minutes, I would have been fine if they had a couple, you know, 10, 20, 30 minute takes. But then for those big moments, I mean, I feel like this, they always say that you got to do it for the greater good of the story. And I think they made the story the one and it sacrificed what, I think the movie could have been better than it was had they ditched that idea. I agree. I, I do agree with that. I think it would have been interesting to have the one or be, you know, like you say, the first 15 minutes into no man's land and the last 15 minutes of the movie, you know, the action part of the movie. Um, the other thing that I found interesting is that like shooting it in a one in this day and age, it looks like, you know what else is shot as a one Video games. Yeah. You know, like single-person shooter yep. video games, that's what it looks like. And, of course, in those games, there is no emotional connection. That's the point. You're supposed to feel yeah. with the camera shot. You are a participant, but, like, there's no connection to any of the characters you're watching. You know, there's a sort of disconnect by nature, so you can kill people. Um, so it, that, to me, maybe attributes to the emotional disconnect. The other thing that, that I wanted to talk about was the script. Now, to me, you know, it's a very straightforward war movie, you know, very similar to Saving Private Ryan. You have, hey, here's the mission. We got to go save these people. Let's go do it. And then you go through uh, all the machinations to make that happen. But on, on a very technical level, I felt um, when his partner, uh, Schofield's partner, Blake, he gets killed about halfway through, maybe. And I thought it was really ill-timed for him to die because the story and the drama and the tension of it dissipates at that point because he's the one who has actual skin in the game. Yeah. He's the one who's going to save his brother. Now, I understand that you know World War I is a different time and concepts of duty and honor and things like that are are much more powerful back then sadly than they are today um but when he dies the story really sort of drops off and there's no connection and because there's no character development the only way to to develop the characters is through their interaction with one another yes and so when one leaves you're just left with a guy who's basically on an obstacle course in a video game. Yeah. And so there's no sort of heartfelt connection. Saving Private Ryan's perfect example. I, I think it's, it's a very flawed film in many ways, but the structure of it is as sound as can be uh, for the most part, besides the, uh, the preamble and the coda, which are brutal, but um, the, you have whatever it is, five, seven guys, who are all sort of stereotypes, but they talk to each other and you learn about them through that. And you can identify with one of them. Whereas in this, you don't get to identify with anyone. There's really only one guy and we don't know anything about him. Yeah. By, uh, you know, intentionally, we don't know anything about him. And so we can't connect to him on his journey. And so his journey becomes less perilous for us, the more perilous it becomes for him. Um, so I think if the two of them could have stayed together, and the film could have sold you that uh, that Blake 
going to get his brother is this is the driving point. And then say when they get to the river, you know, the waterfall part, what if Blake dies there? They make it through the night and he dies there. And literally on the other side of this river, they're singing and there's his brother in that area. You know what I mean? So like, to me, that would have been much more powerful and would have also drawn viewers in and and carried them along. And it also would have given Mackay, who I think is a very good actor, um, and Chapman, a chance to really act with one another and be able to get irritated or, or protective or whatever the case may be and draw out their sort of backstory more if they're going through this crap together. But once he dies, I feel like the film really loses momentum dramatically and, uh, and, and just the emotional connection just dissipates and it becomes, again, an exercise in sort of technical virtuosity and then that's about it yeah i think i think you know talking about changes you would have made i think where he he dies i think if he would have been like severely injured where like it would have impeded just the two of them being able to kind of like run unencumbered yeah it would have been interesting because then when they met the british kind of the battalion or whatever they came across they would be like we're taking you to the hospital and he would have been like, no, I have to go get my brother. And they could be kind of having that, well, if we let him go, he's likely going to die. But we can't make him stay. And then the friends got to like pick up his slack and drag him along, which means that he may not help his brother. So there have been a whole lot more dynamics of the push and pull. And then maybe some of those scenes at night, maybe he has to leave the mm. injured friend behind for a while to draw fire. Then he goes, you know, it's like you could have had all this stuff when he comes back and then he's not there, but he crawled somewhere else. And you're like, he's got to find him. Like you could have added a whole different dynamic that wasn't there because like you said, we knew so little about that guy. And to me, he felt rightfully so afraid because this would be absolutely terrifying and mostly a suicide mission, but it was never, there was never the moment in the movie where you felt like, this was all worth it or he learned something or that even like, let's say he would have, you know, let's say that he would have stopped it, but then the whole battalion would have been obliterated. So he's like, well, why did we even do that? You know, is it, is it like preordained? There was no greater anything. It was just like, okay, we made it to the end of the video game and now it ends. And it was like, you didn't, I didn't come out like, you know, saving private Ryan, people would have the discussion of like, well, you know, to save, one brother's life what happens if it kills eight of our people is that is that an exchange on a moral level is that the right thing to do or at some point is it not and there was like you know there was kind of like why do we get to do this we're not fighting the germans we're basically just running around trying to rescue our own people that's not what we're in the war for but again there was no there was no larger questions there was nothing brought up at any point during the movie that you wrestled with there was like a a big question yeah, I agree. And it has, that was a big problem I had with the film was that it has no philosophical or political or, or moral or ethical mooring whatsoever, which one of the great things about World War I, of course, is that we're so distant from it, it's easier to uh, cast judgments upon it. But you think about uh, Paths of Glory by Kubrick, which is a a stunning film in every sense, technically as, as well as artistically and, and dramatically. And, but the film has a perspective. And the perspective is, is that uh, the men who are fighting the war are victims of the men who are waging it. And 
they don't care. There, there's one line in this film that talks like, oh, well, you know, commanders sometimes like the glory regardless of yes. what it costs. But that's it. It's a throwaway line. Whereas like Paths of Glory, that's the theme of the movie. Yeah. And it's a very rich, rich theme. And even if, if it's not, you know, as anti-war as say Paths of Glory is, um, you have to have a perspective on it. And so at the end, the film doesn't give, give you any sort of satisfying or even unsatisfying ending. Yeah. Even well, that, an ending that would make you angry of like, they well, that, all went and died. Well, that, that, right? that, was, that was all quiet in the Western Front. Like, you right. know, I don't know if we want to give spoilers. I mean, it's an old enough movie. You should have seen it by now. But that ending tears you up because you're yeah. like, come on. <laughs> you're like, you know, it makes you angry. But then it also makes you think like, because there are wars that are worth it. And there are wars that are not worth it. And the hard part is, is when do you know what it is? So that movie was kind of like, hey, you know, war is not great. And so like, think about it before, you know, and there's like some, there's some measured thought that's in it. But this one, it was just kind of like, here's a start line. Here's an end line and go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you think about All Quiet on the Western Front. It's a great example that came out in 1930, I think. And of course, it's about World War I, which is the war to end all wars. And then 20 years later, we're having the second war to end all wars, right? Nobody learned a goddamn thing from yep. it. And, and so to have art that sort of tries to plant their flag in something, even if it is like, oh, this is right. Yeah. This is hellacious, but it's right to do, which many World War II movies in particular do. Um, you could say Saving Private Ryan, that's the point of it. Um, but this film has no, no philosophical or intellectual mooring in that sense. And that's why it becomes sort of a vacant exercise. And then you add on top of it that the drama is taken out on a personal level and there's no sort of political or philosophical drama to it, then it is just an exercise. There's no deeper questions. And, you know, Sam Mendes, as, as a filmmaker, I think, like Spielberg, is not going to ask tough questions and never mind give tough answers, right? He's, he's not interested in that. He's interested in a more, for lack of a better term, a sort of neoliberal outlook on the world where, like, oh, these things just happen. And we're not going to judge them. We're just going to uh, show them and then everybody can go home and feel good about themselves. Because what this film really is, is about uh, the nobility of the British soldier, as opposed to uh, the depravity of the people who waged that war, uh, which is what Paths of Glory is about. And All Quiet on the Rest of the Front, that's, that's what these stories are about. It's like, and, and to not have that just neuters the film to me, artistically and emotionally. There, there's two ways that I think could have, because I thought one of the most poignant points of the movie is when uh, Mark Strong said that, you know, that line about some, some commanders, you know, just want the fight. And that's usually done in a story structure as kind of like a, you know, remember this line, it's going to come back later. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then when it comes back, they're like, oh yeah, they told us they were going to do that. I forgot about that. Is you could have gone two different ways at the end. When he reached the final trench, you could have then had an instance where he tries to tell them and then they don't listen. And he has to sit there and watch the 1600 men he was supposed to save that he did exactly what he was told. He made it. And yet it was futile. And he has to watch them all be slaughtered. And it would be a very downer 
depressing movie. And then maybe you have some sort of interaction where he finds the, you know, deceased brother, you know, that mm. was also killed. So he couldn't save him. Or if you want to make it a little bit Spielberg, a little bit happier, you still have the, you know, he can't stop this onslaught from happening, but let's say the brother does somehow make it. And so like you have this bittersweet, like, well, he lit, he lived, but you know, 1400 other people died. And by the way, his reward is I have to tell him his brother's dead. And it's just mm. like, you're like, well, everybody loses. Like, it doesn't matter if you <laughs> live or die. Everyone. So like, I felt like there was far more from just a pure storytelling structure. You know, you could have added way more depth, way more stakes, way more kind of like, you know, cause can you imagine him then running around in the trenches and out on the field when all this noise going on, telling people to go back and the people threatening him that he's a traitor. I mean, those scenes would have just been, and if you would have kept that as a oneer and he's running around this rat maze, you know, it would have been, I mean, you would have not, I mean, you couldn't have sat still and not had goosebumps and been like yeah. furious or, you know, just you wanting something into, you'd walk out and you would remember it. Like there would be like, Oh my God, there would be like 1917. You kind of walk out and you're like, that experience is over. It doesn't stay with you at all. Right. Or what if he gets to that climactic scene, he tries to get everybody to not go and blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't work. And what does he do? He grabs a rifle and he goes and he runs yeah. with everybody else. Right. So it's a, you're telling a bigger story, a bigger human truth of like, Hey, you know what? I would, I failed in, in my ultimate mission. So I would rather die on this battlefield with my brothers than yeah. Yeah. You know, sit I mean, here and watch them all die. Right. Just all of these options. And he chooses the, the least like you could have had the brother that who, who survives. You could have him survive. But how about he has no legs or something? You yeah, know exactly. I mean? like, yes. Like just something for there's, us. To there's a half a to. dozen ways that would have been a more memorable ending than what they chose to do. Um, and, you know, like you said, I, I think it is a. In in uh, I think I, I think I heard on a podcast and I read on the the credits there that it was like I think it was his grandfather or uncle or something somehow yeah, related it was, to him. It was his grandfather, yeah. That would told him these stories. So this was basically like a way to deify his grandfather and their generation. So it, it's again you don't you don't attack the soldiers that probably didn't have a whole lot of say, and so by doing that and not having anything else in there, it just makes it. It's like candy. It's sweet on your lips when you're there and then you leave and then it's gone. And it doesn't, yeah. you know, there's no last. Yeah. I, in my review of it, I described it as, I think I did, I may have edited it out, but it was like Chinese food that like 20 minutes after you see this movie, you don't think about it again. You just yeah. don't. It just doesn't linger with you, which, you know, how many war films can you rattle off the top of your head that are just like, yikes. You know, like Saving Private Ryan is a great example because the opening of that film, which is not technically the opening, by the way, yeah. Um, <laughs> right, but it's it's what we all prefer to remember as the opening of that film. I mean, that is a jarring experience uh, where technology is used, uh, you know, just wonderfully to put you in that position and see the hell that was uh, Normandy. Um, another film from that same year, The Thin Red Line by Terrence Malick, a different kind of hell, a sort of spiritual and psychological hell of war in the Pacific, you know, you get into the eighties and uh, platoon or full metal jacket, you get into the seventies and apocalypse now and all this. And those films, I mean, apocalypse now is 40 years ago. Yeah. And I still think about that movie. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, like 
I can't imagine how many times I've watched that thing. I just, I recently just saw Platoon again and it's like, man, that's a great movie and Full Metal Jacket, of course. And so, I mean, just a couple of years ago, Dunkirk, right, is, is yeah. an, an unorthodox war film that messes typically with uh, Christopher Nolan. He messes with time and, and perspective and it's, it's very odd. And yet it's a very jarring movie. Yeah. And you can't help but feel at least Nolan went all in and said, hey, you know what? What this is about is about British exceptionalism. Yep. And this is about us accomplishing something, which, of course, at the time the movie came out and was made was during the whole Brexit debate and, and post debate. And so there's this question of what is Britishness and this and that. And here's Nolan coming out with this very pro-British. Yes. Hey, we're planting our flag and we're, by the way, we're leaving Europe. Yep. Right. Is the story of the movie, um, it, which is a choice. Right. A lot of people may disagree with that politically, but like it's a, it's a bold choice that works. This movie does none of those things. It doesn't take any sort of stance. It just says, hey, this is something that happened. Now it's over. Go home and watch a television show. And that'll be the end of it. The, so jumping back to Saving Private Ryan, the, the, the landing on, on the beaches, which is kind of what everybody thinks of as the start of the movie. I think the reason it had such a great effect is it was different than all their war movies because it was the first time of just that utter chaos. Like they captured it in such a way where you're like, oh my God, if this is what it was like, how did anybody make it through? But like you were watching body parts, you were watching shrapnel. It, it was like it overstimulated, to, overstimulated you to the point where you couldn't even know what to look at, which is I think what it was like. And from what I've read and heard and stories about World War I that stuck with me with this particular movie is these people lived in these trenches for years. This was maybe the most disgusting thing that's ever been put on planet Earth are these trenches and these battlefields with rotting corpses and animals and feces and you're like sleeping in your own urine. And I, I, wanted, just to, I wanted that feeling and that in the in the opening trenches on through the um the the no man's land i wanted that to feel so dirty so grimy so disgusting that like almost like that was so bad that they'd be willing to cross no man's land just to get out of how hellish that was and it was like they kind of had some dirt on them their shoes were a little bit muddy I felt it was like, I'm like, no, no, you need to own, like, I would tell every actor, I'm like, you guys can't shower for a month. I just want like the working conditions to be like, you know, I would, I would thrive under those conditions. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't have to tell you to do anything. Yes. I mean, like, but, but you, you want to have like a rawness, you know, to that whole thing that just wasn't there. It was just very, their shoes are muddy. And you're like, you know, there, Ooh, there's some dead stuff on the ground, but it didn't, it didn't feel like they, lived eat and breathed that environment and what what does that do to you because i think someone said that you know maybe it was sam mendes that talked about his grandfather you know until he died he would wash his hands like three or four times before dinner because he always felt dirty like it, it was so mentally scarring to him for how dirty that was that it never never left him and yeah. like, there wasn't a single scene in that movie that you felt that sort of grossness that they had to live through yeah. Yeah. And I think that's very, very true. And, you know, you can find videos on YouTube, which are really heartbreaking of, uh, I was working with a client um, on this topic, but you can find guys who suffered from shell shock after World War One. there's film of them. 
And it is remarkable, you know, and like people would laugh at it if they watch it, if not knowing the context of it. Yeah. But it, it, it is like somebody who's like bones don't work and they're made of jelly and they're walking around and they, they are, it, it's, it's like those, um, those, those like things outside of car washes that blow air into like a, a Santa Claus or something like that. You know, it's like, it's really disturbing to see and to think about how somebody gets like that. And these guys don't seem like they go through that. And I, as you, as you were describing the grime and the filth of it, because that is a huge part of that war, obviously. Uh, I was thinking of the scene in train spotting where, um, Ewan McGregor is a heroin addict and he has uh, uh, heroin, you know, in little baggies in his ass. Yeah. And yet he gets diarrhea. So he has to take a dump in, the, in what is called in the film the world's uh, worst toilet in Scotland. And he does it. And then the, the heroin comes out and he has to go into the toilet to get it. Yeah. And it's a great sequence where he dives in and it's, he's swallowed by the toilet. But it's disgusting because he's covered with feces. Yeah. And it's, just, it's repulsive. But like, you understand, because that's so disgusting, how important that heroin is to him. And you don't see that in this movie of like how important it is for these guys to get to where they're going, what they've been through, what they've sacrificed and all these things. It's just, it feels like a movie. Yeah. It, it feels like, oh, hey, here we go. Let's, as opposed to like the camera all of a sudden turned on in real life as things were unfolding, which is what a wonder is supposed to give you the sensation of. And in, in now, now that we're talking about this, you know, I thought it was an interesting way to start the movie when I watched it. But something's kind of lived with me of like, I've been vaguely unsettled, but haven't been able to figure out exactly why. But the opening scene of the movie, it's kind of you're overlooking a field. And you see this guy kind of thinking and you kind of pull back and there's another guy sleeping by a, a tree. And then, the, you know, someone calls him in and they get up and they walk over to the trenches and then you kind of gradually go deeper into the trenches. And maybe in real life, the beauty was just outside of the trench line. But I re the more I think about it, it should have been opening on them living in the trenches and that horrificness. And then when it opened up later in the movie, when you saw nature again and you saw that everything yeah. wasn't burned to the ground, that would have, as a, as a visual image, it would have like been burned into you like, Oh my God, that was so close to them. But they started with, it was so close to them that when you got sucked in, you're kind of like remembering, well, just walk over there and you're fine. Like it gave the audience like an out that this wasn't an all encompassing. There is no way out, which is I think what everybody felt like in world war one, you know, you're just in the crap all the time. And there's no way out and you can't escape from it. And I think the way they orchestrated that opening shot to bring you into it, it was like, come follow me on this story I'm about to tell, as opposed to like camera opens up and you're like, oh my God, where the hell are we? And what are we doing and what's happening? That would have been a better opening. So I think even the construction of the first part of the Warner, I think ultimately undermined part of the movie. Yeah. I mean, I, I can understand why they would do that. I mean, that makes sense to me. I think it's, I think you're correct. It's ineffective in what they're trying to do. And it makes the coming out the other side much less Im impactful um, than it, it could have been. But I get that like, you know, the whole idea of, Oh, we're going from one idyllic spot. Now we have to go into hell and go through it and all this and that to come out the other side. I get it. I just disagree with 
the choice I mean, to do it that way. They had to verbally tell people that, you know, whatever it was 24 hours ago, this place was like, you know, under siege. Imagine if you opened with just absolute all on full flares, guns, just everything going. And then it just suddenly goes silent and nobody right, knows why right. it went silent. Then they get called over. Then they're like, go cross that. And you're like, are you, did you just witness right. what we witnessed? Cause there ain't no way I'm yeah. going out there. And if you just set that up right away, everyone in the audience has been like, don't go, don't go, don't go. Yeah. Don't go. And it's this time you're like, well, they said they left. So it's no big deal. And you're like, there's no, <laughs> it's like in Jaws. Yeah. By the way, we have, we have Jaws out in the other bay. He's definitely not in this bay right now. Okay, well, I'm going to go and swimming. <laughs> you know, <laughs> then you're like, the only way it's scary is if they're like, oh, they were wrong. Jaws is in the bay. But in this case, like, no, no, we told you he's not in the bay. And you're like, well, that kind of takes out a whole lot of the, the intrigue and the, the suspense of the thing. And I think that's where I think they got too carried away with the, the, the technique as opposed to the emotional impact on the audience and specifically to the characters so that you could open up and see and feel and have pain and fear with them. And in, in which case we were definitely like a third party looking from a distance. We were not there with them, which on a wonder you should be there with them. You know, that's a great idea. Um, if you open that film, say again, structure wise, it, it's like saving private Ryan, but like to open up with a, a huge battle scene, maybe even just the end of it, but just, so that that no man's land has so much more menace to it. Yes. And the idea of like, oh, their their coffee pots are still warm yes. as we're walking through their stuff. And it's like, what in the hell? Like, what is going on? And so every step you take, you're like, how far? We don't, we want to go quickly to warn our brother, but we don't want to go too quickly that we run into the rear end of the Germans as Correct. they're leaving. Correct. We don't want to do it. Yeah, so that that would be a fascinating choice to make, and I and I think a, a brazen and bold one because you could still do it as a wonder, by the way, if you, yes, if you, you really wanted yeah. to, and and it would be you know of course a big battle like that is a beautiful way to to uh, make cinema, but well, and, yeah, in I, in, 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 a, in a wonder like if they have to be carrying you know uh, you know munitions, if they have to be like there's you can follow people that are taking dead or injured people out. There are ways that you can be right up on the front line, right in the thick of it. And feel that unbelievable. And I, like you said, when they were pulling away, if they, instead of being like, oh yeah, they cleared out a couple days ago, they're like, no, they pulled out. Well, when? We don't know, but we know that they're leaving. Like, did they leave it to 10 minutes ago or a couple hours ago? So like that whole idea that they might actually be moving fast enough to catch up to the army, that would be terrifying. Like if yeah. you came around a corner and you're like, oh, there's a whole German army. And if they turn around, there's like 50,000 of them pointing their guns at me. That's, that adds like, okay, don't go too fast. And you have this weird dichotomy of like, go, wait, slow down, go, wait, slow down. And I think right. you, you didn't get any of that in this. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That, that, that would be a, a really fascinating approach to it. But I think we're also, you know, Mendez is not, I don't think he's a very strong filmmaker. Um, I think 1917 is a great piece of evidence to that fact that he just, he, he, he comes from the theater world and he's a very accomplished theater director mm -hmm. and actors love to work with him and he can get solid performances from people, but he is not a great filmmaker. And, you know, he does have one more best directing Oscar than I have, but <laughs> um, I, you know, from my uh, lofty perch, I, I just don't think he's capable of the sort of dramatic and cinematic complexity that 
you're bringing up story-wise. I think, I think he's just not capable of that, which is a shame, you know, uh, because there can be populist sort of filmmakers who are. Christopher Nolan's a perfect example of somebody who pushes the edge of the comfort level for audiences in terms of what they can understand and what they'll accept as sort of mainstream storytelling. But I think Mendez is just not that guy. And 1917 is a reflection of that. So what you're saying, if uh, Sam's listening and wants to come on the podcast, um, just let us know. Uh, and, uh, and, and we can have a, a discussion back and forth and maybe there was reasons why he didn't choose any of our ideas. Uh, yeah. And he will likely know, be winning the best picture Oscar. And uh, yes, we'll be going, how did that happen? And uh, he'll be, he'll be up to <laughs> O. <laughs> he will. I think he will. Uh, we, and we should talk about that. I mean, with the PGA Awards came out this past Saturday, uh, 1917 won. It won a couple weeks ago at the Golden Globes. So it's really got momentum. In a strong year where people are talking, myself included, this being one of the stronger years in cinema in a long time with – you know, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, The Irishman, Joker, uh, Parasite, all of these really high, high-end films. 1917, which I don't think, by the way, I don't think it's an awful movie. It's not an awful movie. Um, I, I think it's, you know, a, a fine movie. Like you said to open it, it's you, you fine. It and, then you, and, then, and then you move on. Yeah, it, but it's just not a great piece of cinema. And yet it is more than likely going to win Best Picture and I, boy, there's a chance that he wins Best Director too, which I think, I think that's a, a longer shot than him winning Best Picture. Yeah, but I agree. It's a it's a shot, right? He's he's got a shot to double up, and it, but I think hands down, I think we can agree. If you're betting, you should bet on 1917 to win yes, this thing. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've, I've, um, as I've been tracking it, you know, there's there's been no upsurge for uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, you know, Parasite seems to be the one that's gaining more ground. I would say that he's got a better chance of landing Best Director and Best Foreign Film than yeah. than Parasite somehow coming over. I'd love to see it happen, uh, but I I don't. And you know, the Joker I think is still too polarizing. I'm not sure it's going to gain gain enough. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think 1917 with the really long odds of Parasite coming up out of nowhere. But I I don't see I don't see a way I don't see any waves right now that's going to take down 1917. I think I think it's got a fairly comfortable lead. I agree, and I think there there will be a split with Best Director. Uh, with maybe Bong Joon Ho might win this thing. Uh, I mean, would be, I, I I would be totally fine with that. I thought he did a marvelous yeah. job with Parasite. Oh, the direction in that movie is fantastic. Which hopefully we're going to do an episode. Yes. on Parasite. Uh, should, you should because I want soon. more people to see that movie. Yeah, like it's a sort of movie that I might keep telling people go see it, go see it. But yeah. it's also a risk because it's like you know got the foreign film. It's a little bit different. It's not a traditional yes. American movie, <laughs> but it's like it's awesome. It is. It's a great movie, and and as great an example of directing as you can find is in that movie yes it's beautifully shot the acting is superb yes even they're speaking korean but like they are fantastic oh they are great they are very yeah. accessible like some foreign films it's hard for people to kind of get past the language and then see them none none of that existed in this yeah. movie for me i did yeah go see parasite <laughs> yeah Come for so 1917, we, stay I, for Parasite. I was going to say, we, <laughs> Parasite totally uh, stole this, this review of 1917. Uh, so any final thoughts on 1917, Barry? No, I, think, I think it is good to see. And I think sometimes when people t tune into these, you know, they're kind of expecting people to tear them apart. And there are many good elements. Like you said, there are some really strong performances. I think watching um, 
uh, uh, oh my gosh, what's the cinematographer's name all of a sudden? Deacons. Deacons. Watching him be stuck into this mode of like, okay, we got to track and we got to have someone hit their mark and we got to have this thing. And then there'll just be a brief moment where you're like, and if you take a screenshot, that's a poster. That's oh, like, yeah. you know, and, and, and how hard that has to be to execute. There are so many things as a filmmaker, you know, that you can go in and watch this for. But if you're just going as a film fan in kind of the whole, what is the essence of the visual language and storytelling within movies? This movie falls short, but it's by no means a movie that you should run away from. Um, you know, I, I want to make sure that people know. I mean, there's a lot to appreciate. I tell people all the time, I'm like, oh, why would you go see a bad movie? I'm like, well, you can always learn something. You can always see a technique. You can always see, okay, that doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? And this has a lot of elements that do work that you can appreciate and like, but it's just, you know, if you're looking at it in the pantheon of best pictures, it's definitely not strong enough in my book, but I'm, I'm yeah, not a voting member yet. So. And look, Deacons will win best cinematography and rightfully so. Like you say, like considering he's doing this as a wonder, the fact that he's able to paint such beautiful shots and his framing, which like, you know, he'll hold for a bit. And there's such expansive shots. Like yes. he does these great landscapes and it's just beautiful to, be, to behold. Um, so the, technically it is beautiful. And again, the cast all do solid work. They're, they're, you know, there's sort of a who's who of stiff upper lip uh, British performances from Benedict Cumberbatch and Mark Strong and uh, Colin Firth and all that. I, I liked I liked Mark Strong. I thought that the the bigger name cameos I thought were maybe amongst the weaker performances because it was so short. It was kind of yes. you know I liked these the subtleness of the other players. So I mean it's fine to always see someone you like, and obviously if you're if you're part of the British Commonwealth, um, you know they're all friends, and you're going to want to work with each other. And I don't begrudge them that, but I wish there was more done with those cameos because those actors. They got some chops, so don't 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 they let do, them but, just do this level only. But the purpose that they're in the movie for is to put them on the poster. And Benedict Cumberbatch, who has maybe on screen for three minutes, he's on the poster for this movie. <laughs> yes, that's true. Which is really shocking. But in terms of those smaller plots, I, I agree. I don't think they're they're not very powerful performances. Um, but they serve their purpose of like, yes. hey, there's a, there's a British star, there's a British star. Yep. But Mark Strong has, has a small part and he is one of my favorite actors and he is fantastic in this movie. Yes, he I has. He, he, he just, he carries with him a certain gravitas that uh, is just undeniable, which I appreciate it. But uh, yeah, so that's our, our, our thoughts, I guess, on 1917. Okay. Well, I think that right. sounds good. Yeah, Fair we'll, enough. we'll set up, uh, we'll talk uh, either. We've got a couple more best picture uh, nominees. Got to get through. Parasite will be one. Two Popes got to be one. And uh, you got to go see Little Women. I did see that. I would love to talk with you about that at some point as well. Yeah, we'll see if that happens. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, happy to be watching, and we'll uh, talk to you next week. Yeah, thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.